Do you remember the 1985 rock song by Dire Straits, Money for Nothing? They were celebrating that they could make a great living just by performing rock and roll music. I guess before that, they'd been in the appliance repair business, and their new lifestyle was so much easier and more lucrative. The classic line is, that ain't working, that's the way you do it, your money for nothing and your chicks for free. That last part is kind of misogynistic by modern standards. Uh, but if you're on the receiving end of a money-for-nothing transaction, that's great. But what if you're on the other side, the one who pays money but gets nothing? That doesn't sound so cool, and I can't think of a popular song celebrating being that kind of a sucker. But here's what is really bizarre if you step back and think about it. We who live in the privileged, modern, rich world have been duped into spending a lot of money for nothing when it comes to our food. Go walk the aisles of your local grocery store and see how many products are being marketed for what they are not. Fat-free, sugar-free, gluten-free, non-GMO, cage-free, antibiotic-free, hormone-free, and on and on. I recently did a survey of my local store planning to take pictures of all the labels like that, and I ran out of storage space on my phone. On today's episode of Pop Agriculture, I want to explore this absurdity which I like to call the marketing of non-existence. For millennia, people have often struggled to have sufficient food, and sadly, based on a 2018 report from the World Health Organization, there's still around 821 million people in our world that are hungry. These fellow humans just need food for what it is, and I think they would be nauseated to know that we buy our food for what it's not. And even we privileged people need our food for what it is to provide us energy, vitamins, minerals, fiber, and all sorts of health-promoting compounds. If only we would eat the amounts of fruits and vegetables most health experts advise. I recently went to pick up a few things at a Ralph's supermarket, and I could not find a cart without a placard on it that said, Simple Truth, Proud of What's Not in Our Food. Of course, they meant pesticide residues, GMOs, anything that might actually help farmers to feed them. I'll never shop at that store again, as with my previous decision to never shop at Whole Foods. So how did this whole money-for-nothing-for-food start? Why are we constantly advertising food for what it's not? I have to sadly say, as a scientist, that this phenomenon was started by some scientists who got things wrong. They were epidemiologists in the 1960s looking at data about lifestyles and heart disease, and they concluded that the typical American diet was high in saturated fat and cholesterol, and that was why heart attack rates were so high in our country. It later turned out that if they had included more of the available dietary data by nationality, they might not have reached that conclusion. Of course, this idea of a high-fat diet causing heart attacks made intuitive sense. Arteries get clogged with fat, and heavier people have a greater risk of heart attacks, so avoiding fat seemed logical. The history of this is interesting and complex. In the late 1960s, as processed foods became a larger part of the American diet, there was pressure to institute some kind of regulation about what nutrient claims could be made and, and what ingredients should be listed. The belief was that 
the claims could be regulated under existing FDA, Food and Drug Administration, rules, and that ingredient information should be voluntary. By 1973, manufactured foods had to show a comparison of their vitamin and mineral content relative to recommended daily allowances, or RDAs. But the disclosing of things like fat content and type remained voluntary. But then several more reports emerged from the Surgeon General making connections between diet and health. And this increased pressure from consumers to get information about what was in their food. So food manufacturers anxious to seize on this interest began to make various claims often to do with fat content, and at that stage not so much about total sugar content or source of the sugar. Then in 1990, Congress stepped in and passed the Nutrition Labeling and Education Act. It empowered the FDA to develop detailed rules, and through the early 90s there were a number of rulemaking activities. The 1990 Act was supposed to include funding for nutrition education so people could properly evaluate the new required data label on the back of the package. That educational funding never materialized, so consumers were much more likely to be influenced by the front of the package, where there were claims like low-fat, zero-cholesterol, etc. Now, this labeling requirement drove changes on the part of food manufacturers, who started avoiding animal-sourced fats like beef tallow and substituting them with vegetable oils. Unfortunately, about the most abundant vegetable oil in the U.S. came from soybeans whose properties made it a poor functional substitute for butter or for deep-frying oils. This is because soybean oil had fats with several double bonds in them, which makes them polyunsaturated. So in order to make margarine as a butter substitute and get a beef tallow substitute for deep-frying, a chemical conversion was used called partial hydrogenation. The problem with that was that during the process, some of the remaining double bonds were altered to the chemically trans configuration rather than the dominant natural cis form. On pop agriculture, you can see how these two chemical structures differ. So in the late 1970s, my wife was working on her master's in nutrition at UC Davis. In one of her classes, she heard about this trans fat thing and came home and showed me how that changed the nature of a fat using her atomic modeling set. We both suspected that this would not be a good thing, so we started carefully avoiding products that said they contained partially hydrogenated oils. It turns out that indeed these trans fats were worse and a culprit for increasing bad cholesterol in our blood systems, and so my wife's suspicions were confirmed. But during the 20 or so years before the required phase-out of trans fats, my family got to enjoy butter, whole milk, and bacon when others didn't think they could. Also, by the way, McDonald's french fries were way tastier back in the days when they were cooked in beef tallow. Now I should point out that the hydrogenation technology has improved so that trans fats are, are no longer an issue. And there are also soybean varieties today that have been improved so that they have a nice monounsaturated fat content like canola oil or olive oil. Unfortunately, these soybeans are not used as widely as they could be because of the whole anti-GMO thing. So Americans got used to paying attention to implied health claims on the front label, and those began to proliferate. I believe it was with good intentions about people's health, but there was also some marketing opportunism going on. The soybean processing industry started promoting a label that said, contains no tropical oils, because their international competitors 
who supplied coconut and palm oil, fell into a saturated fat category. I think it's ironic that somehow coconut oil has now become a trendy option, despite being a saturated fat. In any case, many health experts now believe that our obesity epidemic is at least partially fueled by the anti-fat trend shifting us more towards carbohydrates. Fats are what give you the sense of satiety, of being full, so many people probably continue eating beyond what they actually need. There's a, a great article from 2002 in the New York Times Magazine with the title, What If It's All Been a Big Fat Lie? That's worth reading. This sort of barely regulated kind of marketing expanded to the other health demons, which eventually included sugar, antibiotics, hormones, gluten, and GMOs. Now, there are certainly people who need to avoid gluten because they have celiac disease, but I think most of the people who avoid gluten are doing it for no good reason. And there's a related phenomenon involving the marketing of organic products. Most consumers think that organic means no pesticides. This is not true. It's just those farmers have a more limited set of options among the pesticides, which are all rigorously regulated by the EPA. The organic list is not based on any legitimate scientific criterion to do with safety, just what some committee decides is natural. And organic farmers must deal with crop pests, and they are often less able to do that with their limited toolbox. And this is part of why they are less efficient than other farmers in terms of their use of resources like water, land, and energy. Well, last year I had an opportunity to speak at the Banff Pork Summit in Alberta, which is an annual meeting about sort of the science of pork production. And one of the researchers had looked into the results when pork producers yielded to the pressure to eliminate antibiotics from their system. Now, in this case, it was not just a routine antibiotic for feed efficiency. It was much more of a preventive uh, veterinary kind of practice. And those producers who stopped using the antibiotics saw a 5% or greater increase in the rate of mortality among their young pigs. You see lots of chicken being promoted as hormone-free, which is misleading for two reasons. First of all, no chickens are given hormones anyway, and the chicken almost certainly makes some of its own hormones or it wouldn't grow and develop normally. Again, money for nothing. Now, to be fair, some food is promoted for what it is, for several meaningful categories like rich in vitamins, minerals, or antioxidants. And for cooking function, those monounsaturated fats from things like olives and canola and uh, modern soybeans, that's a good thing for cooking. Whole grains and nuts are legitimately promoted for what they are. And fish do, in fact, supply heart-healthy omega-3 fats. The bottom line is that we should all eat a diverse, moderate diet with lots of fruits and vegetables and get some exercise. That's always been true, but you, you can't make a fortune selling a book about that diet. So, are there any things that we should not want in our food? Definitely. Mycotoxins produced by fungi that infect certain crops can be very harmful. And we're fortunate that our farmers on our food chain does a great job of monitoring, sorting, and pest control to keep those toxic things out of our food supply. There's an earlier pop agriculture about the mycotoxin issue. We certainly don't want human pathogenic bacteria in our food, which unfortunately does happen from time to time. And we don't want there to be dangerous levels of heavy metals like lead or cadmium or arsenic. What is interesting is that you don't see food products being marketed for these legitimate 
not categories. So what is the takeaway here? Be skeptical of all marketing claims, particularly those that speak to what isn't in your food. Don't pay that money for nothing. And go find some legitimate education about nutrition, even if Congress never followed through on helping us that way. Also, enjoy food and appreciate how good we have it here. You can follow me on Twitter at GrapeDoc, at G-R-A-P-E-D-O-C, and visit my blog at www.popagriculture.com.